Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. The head of the World Bank is warning that climate change will lead to violent conflict over shortages of food and water. Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel said Monday that rising sea levels and other effects of climate change will pose major challenges for America's military. Hi, everyone. This is Doug Parsons from America Adapts, the climate change podcast. On today's episode, we have Beth Gibbons, the managing director of the American Society of Adaptation Professionals. Also, don't forget to consider subscribing to this podcast on iTunes and liking us on Facebook at America adapts if you have ideas for guests or just questions for me send them to americadaps at gmail.com thanks for joining us today to us to lead this is the only planet we've got Hi, everyone. This is Doug Parsons with America Apps, the climate change podcast. On today's podcast, I have Beth Gibbons, the managing director of the American Society of Adaptation Professionals. Hello, Beth. Hi, Doug. So happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining me. I've been very excited about this conversation. I've been like jotting notes and thinking, you know, it's someone who has to think about adaptation all the time. And so I'm just excited for a conversation. I hope we make magic today. Who knows? But I've got, I don't know if I got tough questions for you, but I think I have some interesting questions for you. So uh, let's just jump right into it. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So you're new to ASAP, and I sort of want the listeners to know who you are. So could you just maybe give a little bit of background? I know you were just at, recently at the University of Michigan, but just you know, spend a little bit of time how new you are, you know, what you, you, you're supposed to be doing at ASAP, and then maybe just a, a couple of previous positions. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I did just take on the position of managing director of ASAP. It's been about two months now. And in this position, I'm really charged with taking the American Society of Adaptation Professionals and helping it to grow as a professional society. And in that, what we're trying to do is look across the adaptation field and identifying what are the good practices that are out there. We know that adaptation has been catching on and more and more is taking place, but it's time for us to say, you know, this is a thousand flowers blooming, but maybe the garden needs a little cultivating. So how do we do that? How do we identify the good practice, lift it up, make sure that it's being shared? Also, how do we find those people that are coming new to the adaptation field and say, you know what, there's a community here for you. There's a society here for you where you can find what are the good practices, who are the leaders, who are your peers, and connect them with that society so that they can feel like they're part of something bigger and broader and really don't need to reinvent the wheel. You know, there are uh, good practices out there for them. I see my place with ASAP as taking it from what has been maybe a, a young organization that was established in 2013 and really moving it forward to something a bit more mature and something that's really coming into its own. Previously, I had been with the University of Michigan. I was at the University of Michigan as the director of their climate center. And I also was the program manager of NOAA's Great Lakes Integrated Science and Assessment Program. This is one of 10 
of NOAA's RESA programs around the country. And in both of those capacities as the Climate Center Director and the Program Manager for GLISA, I was very dedicated to taking climate information and making it usable and useful to end users. So we worked with universities across what we consider the Great Lakes, which are the eight states from Minnesota to New York, plus the province of Ontario, taking research coming out of these great institutions and converting it into something that can actually be applied to on-the-ground decision-making. And I did that for about four or five years, and it was it was fantastic. But in the course of it, I really saw that while research has a lot to offer, people on the ground just need communities so badly. While they learn from research, more and more and more we hear folks who are trying to get work done want to know, who are my peers? What are they doing? How can I replicate it? And where is an entity that I can go to that will help me cut through the noise to just get to what's good? I saw the ASAP job come open and I said, you know what, this is a chance for me to get back to really serving people, which is something that I love. I was a Peace Corps volunteer. I lived in Africa. I worked in membership organizations before picking up a graduate degree in urban planning. And so I said, you know, I love adaptation work. I love the research, but I think I'm going to put that aside and I'm just going to focus on the people for a while and see if we can actually make a difference and get this field up to snuff where it needs to be and and help people out. Well, that's a big challenge, and you know, you I think we probably dig into it later. But you'd mentioned the research, and I think that's sort of what's sort of happening is that there's this the resources are being thrown at the research, and you know, we're gonna have to spend the next twenty, thirty years developing new research, new data. But it, it's almost too much now. Mm-hmm. And the practitioners out there, well, what tools should you be using? And yeah, I think there's a lot more handholding that needs to happen. So I think that's an exciting opportunity for your organization. I agree. There's an idea that more research is going to enhance our certainty about the future to a point that people will be able to act with absolute certainty. And that's just not realistic. You know, we deal with uncertainty in all of our decisions, whether they are economic, whether they are which way you're going to drive to work today. We we often grapple with uncertainty. And so the uncertainty about our climate future is something that, to some degree, we really need to accept and find a way to move through it. And the idea that with time or with more money, science is going to be able to tell us how much it will rain in my backyard on January 7th, 2078 is unrealistic. We know what the trends are. We know where we're heading. And so we can grab onto those and make really well-informed decisions with what we have. I, I think that's where we are as a field in needing to move towards that. Well, I don't want to jump into the meat so quickly. And so Sorry. I, no, <laughs> you're doing your job. But I've got some questions here for you. I'm going to put you on the spot. And I think, you know, six months from now, after you've been on the job for a while, you'll probably have a little bit different, I think, answer to this. But you probably are working on two types of elevator speeches, one for a potential member that you want to recruit to ASAP, but then just talking about adaptation in general. And so, okay, imagine you're in some diner, and in in I think you live near Ann Arbor, right? I do. So Mich- Michigan. don't talk to them. They all believe it. So No, oh, <laughs> listen. No, it doesn't matter. You're not talking about climate change, like the broader. I mean, you can, but okay. So you're sitting next to somebody decked out in all this Michigan Wolverine material so you they're being friendly they're chatting with you and at some point it comes out it's like what do you do and you mention your title you mention the organization and they say oh what is climate change adaptation what would you say to that person so they're all decked out in their go blue wolverine outfits so i would say to them do you remember do you remember last september at the 
preseason game and the big house at University of Michigan was completely flooded. The field flooded mm-hmm. over. Okay. And they'd say, yeah, that was crazy because the water was coming in through the tunnels. You know, the tunnels that you have your Wolverines come down. Instead, there was just a flow of water onto the field. My work is helping the city of Ann Arbor and other cities to think about if we're getting 45% more rain a year, which the city of Ann Arbor is, how will our infrastructure cope with that? And how are we going to make sure that the way that we're building and the way that we're living in our communities can stay stable in a changing climate? Because we're already seeing tremendous change and we're seeing it, you know, it's disrupting the way that we live, work and play, just like it did during that preseason game last year. So what do we need to be doing? Maybe it's putting in bigger culverts. Maybe it's bringing in what we call green infrastructure. So this is a way that we want to see water actually, you know, going into the ground where it falls, that what we call green infrastructures is capturing the water where it falls. And and so putting that kind of element into the parking lot around the big house, you wouldn't see that flood. But my job is really to go out and you think about adaptation. It's saying the changes are already with us. So how are we going to be adapting our communities, both the services and the infrastructures, so that we can cope with those changes? Okay. That's how I say it to a Wolverine, because everybody remembers that game. <laughs> okay, you know, I'm going to judge you here. I'm going to grade you here. All right, that was really good. You you wrapped it into the Michigan stuff. That, that was, you know, a softball. I would have probably tossed in something like, you know, Coach Harbaugh is all over this. That might have helped you there. But, no, I thought very solid. You made it relatable, and you avoided – I think the key thing is, like, you avoided talking too much about, like, climate change. You just kept it really local and relevant. So, no, that was really good. I think you'll be successful. So I'll tell, you, I'll tell you a funny story. We uh, we worked down. I've worked down in Columbus, uh, Ohio, and you know, as a Wolverine, as a you know, a UM shop, going down to Columbus mm-hmm. is a little touchy. And yes. I'm not kidding. Anytime I work in Ohio, I wear crimson just to, just to say, you know, hey, I get it. Like I'll put on I'll put on your crimson and gray if that's what you need. But when we're down there, one of the changes that we talk about in the natural systems is that the Buckeye is moving north. And so Mm. it always ends up being this sort of laugh line, but it's serious. We say, you know, look at these tree species shift. We see birch moving out. We see maple moving out and we see the Buckeyes leaving Ohio and coming to Michigan. Oh, that's (laughs) awesome. There's so much you could do with that. Yeah, that's great. You know, know, they're going to dominate in more ways than one. So yeah. <laughs> scare Michigan fans that way. Okay, that was a great answer. Very good answer. I've asked that before, and I think that was probably the most rock-solid one. Okay, and so on that theme, I I still feel like adaptation is living in the giant shadow of mitigation. I guess as a, you are now a leader in the adaptation field, you're in, in the, the head of this society. Do you have any approaches to that? I mean, you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? It's just like the media dying. So when you try to explain adaptation, and to me, it's actually going to be the much bigger story over the next 10, 50 years. And yet we're just, you know, it's not getting the attention it deserves. Yeah, I agree. And we see that both in terms of the media attention and also to a greater concern to the funding attention that it receives. We see that adaptation is something that 
is required to be taken on at such a local level that it's easy in these larger national dialogues to ignore it, I think. And something that ASAP needs to be focusing on, and we have a policy affinity group that is focusing on this, is how do we do a better job of communicating from the local level where adaptation is happening? Natural resource managers who are seeing ravines, you know, these very sensitive ecosystems being eroded, they are acting on climate change. They're thinking about more waters coming through this ravine, the climate, many, you know, the microclimate of the ravine is changing. What do we need to do to cope with it? So they're thinking about it. But then you have this federal level and the state level, and they're able, I think, to dismiss the need for adaptation, or perhaps they don't actually understand what is needed locally. And so something ASAP is trying to do is really improve this communication flow. Locals saying, this is what I need for my natural system. This is what I need for my urban system. This is what our social system needs, and communicate that to the federal. And so the federal programs as they're spinning up and coming out with both the incentives, but also the regulations are making sense to the local actors. Cause right now those conversations aren't talking to each other. That I guess that's maybe that's also being too hopeful and answering your question, saying that these things are occurring overall. I think you're right. We need to get the conversation. Just we need to bring adaptation to a, you know, highlighted central place in the climate change discussion. Climate change, I guess there's two ways that society is kind of looking at it. Oh, you're going to have to change your light bulb. You're going to have to drive more fuel-efficient cars. The public isn't necessarily excited about that. Or there's the doom and gloom. Here are these climate change impacts. And they do make for great media stories. But to me, the adaptation is this proactive. It's sort of a positive narrative if it's, you know we somehow kind of create a better – I guess, narrative for it. And there's an opportunity there, and I just don't think we're there yet. But it's something I would hope the public is better able to rally around than the the other ways that climate change is being discussed. So I don't know if we want to go down this road in this conversation, but one thing that seems to be catching on is the language of resilience. And somehow the idea of community resilience is more, maybe it has more of a positive connotation because it seems to be what's getting, I want to say globbed onto, but that's not. <laughs> it's the flavor of the month, whatever. Yeah. It is. It is. It seems like, I can't tell. That's what I can't tell. Is it the flavor of the month or is this actually a language that's more resonant with people? Is adaptation so wonky? Is it so academic that people can't really understand what it means versus if you say, are you resilient? And that kind of is an inner strength. It's the idea that you will not just overcome, but overcome and become better and stronger. And perhaps that resilience language is what we do need to be using in order to be inspiring people to pay attention to this side of the climate change equation. That's something that I'm thinking about right now, how, how seriously to take a language shift, because if it's the language that works, that's the language you need to use. You know, we don't decide what works for people. They tell us, and that's the language we need to move to. Well, all right. This, I'm glad you went down this road. There's other things I want to get back to related to ASAP, but had this discussion on previous podcasts, and I think there's two can't. This is totally West Side Story kind of thing. I think resilience is terrible. I get what the term is, but you line up 10 people and ask them what it means, and you're going to get 10 different definitions. 
actually a former colleague, I don't know if I ever shared that with you. He wrote a paper about it. And so adaptation, both terms are wonky to the public, but I would expect that resilience is even more wonky. And resilience is giving the impression that like if you do X, Y, and Z, we can keep things the same. It's like we're climate proofing things and there you Mm go. Whereas adaptation and again, this is people are sort of in that universe. It's like, well, for some things, we do want to try to manage it in a way that it will be resilient to changes. But some systems will change. And let's acknowledge that. And some of these tools, scenario planning models are telling us this. And you will behave differently. And the, the sort of classic dumbed down example is like, okay, you, should you use natural infrastructure to prevent sea level rise or at least mitigate it? Or do you build a seawall? And someone would argue that, oh, well, we're making a resilient community. We're going to build a seawall. Whereas maybe someone who has more natural resource inclinations would say, well, listen, the models are telling us that the seawall is eventually going to go away and you're going to do a lot of damage to this natural system. So I just think it gives people false assurances to focus more on resilience. And I, maybe that's the direction you go. I mean, I, I have colleagues that we, we've talked about this a lot and mm-hmm. I'm, I don't like it because they, I, I'll share that paper with you because they have this discussion, you know, specifically and it's really interesting what they've done. I would love to, I would love to have that paper. I think that's interesting. And I, I think if you break these words down, there's definitely truth to your, your point of view that resilience is building the seawall where adapt adaptation the basis of it is you need to adapt right the same old is not going to cut it anymore you need to be coming up with something else where resilience doesn't necessarily infer that and so maybe it's you know adapting our systems for a more resilient future i don't know i don't know if you can put these words together i see that done and and i wonder if that sentence makes any sense <laughs> and, and don't get me wrong i'm not against re- like resilience i just think it becomes a subset of adaptation and so maybe there is an instant where everyone agrees let's build the seawall mm-hmm. but i think i was in a, a meeting with a bunch of federal folks and these are people from like the FBI and they start thinking about facilities and their bosses are saying, you need to climate proof everything. And they're going to approach it just like, all right, status quo, what do we need to do to maintain the status quo? Whereas more on the, you know, Department of Interior, the natural resource side, they're like, well, yeah, we're thinking like that. But at the same time, we're going to have that conversation. Maybe we do throw in the towel on Fort Jefferson off the Florida Keys. And so the resilience crowd is like, no, we can protect it all. And, you know, that makes me nervous. And that gets into the whole conversation like maladaptation i have that as a note like i want to talk about with yeah. at some point but you know what i like this conversation is there anything else you want to say about adaptation versus resilience so I, i'm glad you went down that path because i it's I, I got a big giant chip on my shoulder about it as you can <laughs> no that's good it's good to it's good to be passionate about these things because people have to be you know if if no one's passionate about it then nothing will get done for adaptation or for resilience so it's it's good that it's good that you feel that way. I think I don't think I have anything else though, to say about it. Well, it. it lends itself to other topics, though. Here that I, I think as we kind of head out, especially in, in the society that you're running, the sort of member that you might recruit. And so I, I guess I want to get back to like what you're hoping to uh, accomplish with ASAP. And first of all, I've dug around on your website and I see you have 47 states, members from all 47 states. Does that sound right? Yeah. I don't know. Who are the holdouts? I mean, who are these bastards? The holdouts are Montana. I think it's Montana, Idaho, and maybe – I don't know where the other one is. Maybe it's Arkansas. There's no spots on there. And I actually know somebody in Montana, so – oh, it must not be. Montana's on there. Oh, it's Wyoming. 
I'm sorry, and I'm sorry to everybody in Montana and <laughs> for confusing those. <laughs> oh, I had someone in Montana too that I would I would have needled. I'd be like, all right, you better join just to yes. get these states over the top. But I don't. No, we've got the the Headwaters Economics crowd up there with their great work that they do in data visualization and other economic applications. But yeah, I actually know somebody in Wyoming, so I need to get on her so we can uh, get ourselves up to 48. I was sort of disappointed about that. I just did this review where I looked and I said, are we really just missing three and and we are but we do have puerto rico and we have seven other countries members from seven other countries so i don't know would you trade arkansas for six other countries maybe <laughs> oh <laughs> i would trade arkansas for any number of things now i i don't want to offend my arkansas listeners for your own like if you are recruiting i don't know if you've dealt with the association for fish and wildlife agencies but they deal with all 50 states and you know they have the climate change committee so i highly recommend i could put you in touch with someone there if you don't know them already uh davia palmeri is their climate change coordinator and i think she would almost consider it uh you know a challenge to sort of all right we got to get one of our fish and wildlife climate change people into this group so because they would, I would love it because, okay. you know, we have a partnership with the Forest Service. So if there's any uh, internal competition there between forests and fishes, I would love to take advantage of it. Oh, the AFWA and the state agencies, some aren't doing much at all, but others are doing just really cutting edge stuff. And I'm, I'm sure some are already members, but just, they're actually they have their big conference. I don't know what, what kind of conferences you go to here. I'm recommending conferences to you, but I think their next one is in Philadelphia or something in just a few weeks. And. I'm going to put you in touch with Davia. She's great, and I think she would love to be able to share additional resources to all the climate change people. So, I would love that. And it's just to that, something that we are trying to think about is the way that ASAP enhances what these existing associations do and offer to their members. So I had a really great conversation yesterday with uh, somebody from the Natural Hazard and Mitigation Association, and we talked about the way that we can be creating adaptation resources that would be useful to his members and the way that we really work in a, in a way that's complementary so that people don't get overwhelmed by all of these potential memberships that are out there. You know, the goal of ASAP is to support and connect the people that are doing adaptation work. And we want to do that in a way that's adding clarity to their day-to-day -day efforts, not muddling the waters. Yeah, and so I guess that's one of my questions to you is I know it's a new group and that must be really tough. And they went, I think about a year ago, year and a half ago from like, and I get the strategy, you know, free membership just to get some exposure the behind the paid firewall. And so, I mean, what is your pitch to people that, okay, should I actually join this society? I mean, if you've only been there two months. I get you're still honing your pitch, but what what is it like you're what is it what yeah. is, you're at a conference how do you how are you trying to recruit someone what would you say to them well i would say to them that the american society of adaptation professionals has been built on the shoulders of some of the leaders in this field so our core membership is made up of folks that have been doing this work for 15, 20 years. They're engaged at the state level. They're engaged at the federal level. They're engaged with the White House and agencies across the U.S. And we really have a unique perspective on what is good practice. And what we're doing now is developing external facing resources for our members primarily that will help you to like, as I said, cut through the noise. We know that there are more and more approaches to a vulnerability assessment and more and more approaches to, you know, these different engagements that 
engagement processes, and we can really help to say, this is what's best for you in your place without you having to dig through so much that's out there. We also are developing very strong relationships with information providers. So with Georgetown Climate, with CAKE, with the Forest Service, with Climate Access. And when you're a member of ASAP and you have a membership behind that paywall and you select what your interests are, our partnerships with these other information providers means that our site is going out and it's crawling over theirs and it's pulling to your profile what are the relevant resources for you. So instead of you having to go and gallivant across the internet looking for whatever might be, you know, key to your interest, you have this one-stop shop, which is your ASAP profile. And from there, you also can see this incredible community. You know, there's now a thousand people that are on the website and we're, of course, growing that. But you can look across the community and see who shares your interest, send them in notes, send them messages and start to build out your own, you know, personal network within the greater ASAP network. So I would say that's my pitch right now. And that along, as I said, with that kind of local to federal translation that we're doing. And I think that we're going to be building more resources. We're listening to the members. We're putting out another member survey beginning this fall. So we'll be hitting up the California Adaptation Forum, the Carolinas Climate Resilience Conference, the Great Lakes Adaptation Forum, the Pacific Northwest Climate Conference, and really getting both feedback from our members and non-members about what do they want from a society. Well, I think just from more of an insider, people that have been doing it for a while, it's probably exciting for them that they see that a society has formed that allows them to kind of organize around each other. So that's great. And so I guess my next question, though, is I think there's probably a lot of people out there that are going to be doing adaptation or doing some form of adaptation, but they don't necessarily realize it. And it seems like it could potentially be like a growth area for you. The adaptation universe should be more than, you know, the adaptation coordinator at the World Wildlife Fund. It's a much bigger universe. I, mean, I guess you got to start small, but would you agree? I mean, the people you could recruit, it's, it's, it seems like a huge pool of people. I'll be honest. I think one of the things that will be hardest for us as we become more successful is defining who is our member because the potential for who could be an ASAP member is so broad. Mm -hmm. And right now, as I said, we really do have the leaders of the field, but what we need to be attracting are the people who are young professionals coming into the field, but especially you know, midterm professionals who have suddenly recognized that adaptation has fallen on their plate, whether they are a stormwater engineer, whether they are a uh, fish, a white fish manager on Lake Superior, whether you're somebody who's maintaining, you know, dunes on the coast, all of a sudden adaptation is a watchword and they don't know what to do with it. And so we need to make sure that we're positioned to capture them and to make sure that they feel like they have a place to go for their resources. And there, the effectiveness of ASAP becomes a numbers game because there you want them to look at the organization and see that it is both broad and deep because you want them to find a regional network that arms length connection. Somebody that, you know, at their, you know, their next regional climate meeting, they might sit and have a, an ASAP, you know, happy hour and exchange ideas. But you also want them to have that, so that regional kind of touch, but also the, a deep 
sectoral expertise that they can call on. And so there we really need to have more and more people come to the table. And, and as I said, I think that success for us looks like a membership that is increasingly diverse of these seasoned professionals, these younger professionals and these midterm professionals who are, you know, extremely knowledgeable in their specific area, but really looking for guidance when it comes to the adaptation component. Well, you know, I heard some encouraging news. My previous guest, Adam Spencer, was filmmakers for conservation, but he's working with university students in, you know, conservation programs. And he said pretty much just about all of them were getting pretty significant exposure to climate change issues, which, I mean, I haven't been in university in a long time, but uh, that's encouraging. And I would guess that those are kind of people in the pipeline that you would be interested at least. I don't know if you're doing university outreach yet, but uh, as those people pivot to being professionals, it's at least they're getting exposed to the concept. Yeah, we don't have college recruitment currently. I think that having college chapters would be awesome. What we do have is a neat relationship with AmeriCorps, uh, Resilience AmeriCorps. So there's now a Vista AmeriCorps program, which is focused on community resilience. And we have a partnership going on with those cohorts that are, you know, I guess they come out every six months. Uh, I apologize for not having the absolute details of everything that we are doing yet, but they're offered a year membership and we're developing mentorships between these AmeriCorps volunteers and somebody who's an ASAP member and engaged in the field. This was actually initiated through what's called Civic Spark in California, which is a California version of you know, the broader AmeriCorps program. And so we have now cohorts of Civic Spark and cohorts of Resilience AmeriCorps volunteers that are ASAP members. And we're hoping to kind of imbue them with this you know, good practice knowledge and build them into the network. Oh, there they get that resilient AmeriCorps. I mean, that's great. They're a great program, but they went with that word, didn't they? Um, they I, sir, I think that it seems like the Fed is just doubling down. Oh, completely. Resilience. The, the CQ, Council of Environmental Quality, they're smitten with the word because I'm, I they get are. it. It just shows, hey, public, we're going to climate proof everything and it's all going to be okay. When I worked at the National Park Service, that really was starting to rear its ugly head. And there yeah. we go. And I think there's the, that multi group. Resilient America is – I'm not quite sure what – you know what I'm talking about, though. It's like it's like this committee of feds and local governments, and I'm not quite sure what they're doing right now. But, yeah, they went with Resilient America. Anyway, <laughs> show your bias, dog. So when were you with the Park Service? The, I left the Park Service probably two and a half years ago. I They had a relatively new program, the Climate Change Response Program. And so I was their D.C. person. So I got to go to all the kind of – federal meetings and you know just as adaptation was really kind of coming up it, it was fascinating being in, mm -hmm. in the thick of that how different agencies were approaching it so yeah and the park service to their credit w was doing some amazing things individual parks hit or miss but they had a service-wide program that was really i think doing some cutting yeah. edge stuff i did some scenario planning work with the national park service on isle royal which is the largest island in Lake Superior where there's a uh, native population of wolves, like very delicate wolf moose ecosystem. And we 
worked with the park service there to put together potential scenarios and you know, so potential, I think five potential climate futures and what the impact would be on that ecosystem and how the park might consider acting on that. And I, I thought the outcome of it was this lesson that the park service seemed to take away, which was, you know, stationarity is dead and this need to be thinking instead of preservation, we can't just, we can't freeze the past in place anymore. And we need to start thinking about how do we manage these resources? Do we allow for change? Because change is, is coming. And I think for the Park Service, that's especially hard when their mission has been, you know, to conserve. I'm using the wrong word. I, don't, I can't remember if it's conservation or preservation. Oops. Oh, but, I should know you know, this. just freeze it in, I, you know, to freeze it in place. And, and I guess it's preserve it for history. Conservation is to kind of maintain a level but continue using the resource, right? Well, and that park was such a hot button issue when I was there. And so, yeah, that scenario planning sort of happened just as I was leaving. But, I mean, did you maybe, I think, work with Lee Welling, Kat yeah. Hawkins, and yep. Nick Fisichelli? Was he working with you? Yep. Yeah. So, and then my shop was um, Ricky Rude. Oh, and great name. I know, right? If you haven't talked to Ricky Rude, I highly recommend him for a discussion. Okay. He, is a, he has been with NASA for years. And he's a climate modeler who has really turned his attention to uh, usability, climate information usability, and then the fostering of climate communicators out of applied climate programs, out of climate engineering programs. And he's sharp. And he's from from the Ozarks, I think. So he has also a very soothing voice oh and is he good you think he'd be a personable guest that, that would, oh he's great he lives in he owns a goat farm in colorado perfect. Perfect. and commutes to ann arbor so there's plenty of stories there and, <laughs> and that's just such a great like wrestling name i love it so that would be mm-hmm. good i would highlight that so we got off on a tangent there we were in the middle oh i'm just having a total brain fart oh we were talking about the federal oh take yeah resilience. and the park service yeah the Park Service, yeah. You know, we I just, uh, yeah, we actually just featured a story too on Assateague Asset- Island. Yes. Uh, yeah, which I thought was really um, a very, very impressive planning process that the Park Service has undertaken there. Anyway, just uh, to say, you know, on their centennial, kudos to the Park Service. I feel like they're trying. Anyway. <laughs> well, when I when I would go to these meetings, I felt blessed because I when I talked about what we're doing, I could brag about all these things. But then you know, some of the other groups, like you know. BLM, they'd be like, oh, well, you know, we did this. And I don't know if you caught that Nick Fisichelli was the my first guest, podcast guest. So we, oh, I didn't. Yeah, he's I, talked a lot about national parks and climate change. Right on. Good. So you need to listen to that one, don't you? I do. <laughs> I went back, I think, too, and I have to admit that That's all right. the uh, three kids full-time job thing, I'm trying to figure out when is my podcast time. I now work from home, so I don't have a commute. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but when the baby starts so, crying, that's when you stick on the earphones, right? Oh, yes. That's what I should be doing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't take that for any advice. I, this question, I um, back to some of the things that you do with ASAP, and I know you're n- new and you're really trying to figure out your approach to this and finding the funding for it. And, you know, the question I have, and I, I, I don't think it necessarily puts you on the spot. It's just like, okay, in 10 years, you're the executive director of a, ASAP. Now, what... In a perfect world, be aspirational here because it's 10 years. 
three to five years, someone might be able to call you on if you don't meet it. But 10 years, what would ASAP be doing? How big would it be? I mean, like what role would it be playing? And just, I mean, I guess have some fun with this question, but 10 years and you're fully funded, whatever. What, what would you describe ASAP in 10 years? I would say that in 10 years, ASAP is a membership organization that's looking at 25,000 members, maybe Ooh. more. We're a organization that is serving people in the public sector, which is our, I think, largest audience right now across local to federal. But we're also really integrated to the private sector. So whether you're Atkins or you're Deloitte or you're whoever, and you're looking at adaptation activities as that becomes bigger and bigger in your portfolio, you're coming back to the to ASAP to figure out what is the good practice and you're reporting back to ASAP on what your good practice are practices are. We're setting the standards. So we have the private sector. I also want to see that we are really embedded in this policy discussion. So if you're a policymaker, you're turning to ASAP. We have a policy page. We have a policy uh, liaison who can help guide and educate policymakers, local, state, and federal on what is the good practice? What do your constituents need? How do we make this a stronger, more adapted, if not resilient country? <laughs> and so let's see, I'm making my little notes to myself. We've got our public, our private, our policy pieces. And then, of course, we're running just fantastic um, conferences across the country. Okay. So okay. we're owning the the national discussion, but then we have um, regional pop-ups. So you can plan that year to year. You are going to have a place to gather with your peers to exchange what you're doing, have great ideas, have great discussions, have green drinks and have a great time. I think that one of the, one of the things I love about the adaptation community and, I'll, you know, I'm, I'm really a people person. I actually come to climate adaptation really from a human rights lens. Hmm. And I love how positive this community is, that it's a very open community. It's a community that anytime I'm at, whether it's a regional or it's the national conferences, I feel like we have a lot of fun while we're also getting work done. There is a light at the end of the tunnel and it's not a train. You know, we are going someplace, we're going forward, we're making our communities better and stronger, more integrated with our natural and our built environments. And this sounds like a maybe fluffy thing to include in that vision, but that positivity and the adaptation community as a place that supports and bolsters people and you come to and you feel good when you've left a conference or you've left a conversation is something that right. I want to make sure that we continue having and being able to be proud of. Well, and I guess the, if you, there's, if there's a public face to what you would be doing is that there, you know, Climate change is happening, and here's a society that's on the job. You know, you would hope to be able to kind of share that message to that narrative. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that is that is a narrative. Climate change is happening. This is not something that's going to happen in 50 years. It's not something that's going to happen in 100 years. Climate change is occurring right now, and there are really great things that we can do about it. So let us help you be more ready than you maybe already are. And if you're already ready, then Let's forge ahead. Let's make sure that if you're on the leading edge, it's not that bleeding edge, that we as a community can ensure that you can push forward and still be secure. So in that way, too, 
a missing piece of what I just said, maybe in the private sector, but is that insurance industry and bringing in the insurance and the finance so that they're incentivizing communities and anybody running any systems that they should be really thinking very strategically and aggressively about what the future looks like and that the future isn't what the past was. You know, we, we can't use the, the just standard models that have been used up until now. We need to be developing a way to look forward. And so bringing that financial and that insurance industry to the table so that they incentivize and allow forward thinking is also critical. Well, you look at maybe some of the other societies or associations, and I, and I think of the, the Planning Association, which is a pretty mm-hmm. ma- mature group, $2 million operation, lots of members. You know What they've done, and I don't know if that's a decision you make down the line, but the idea of certification, and I've had these conversations before, what would, does it mean to be certified in adaptation? Yep. And do you, do you see that w- way to go for ASAP, or is it too early for that? No, I think it's critical that we do. So there needs to be an adaptation certification. The way that we tackle this, if this is something that ASAP handles uh, independently and saying that we're going to develop the curriculum, we're going to develop the accreditation, and we're going to you know, push this out into the community, the existing community, the emerging community, I think the question that we have right now is, do we do this independently or do we do this really hand-in-hand with APA? with the floodplain managers, with the NHMA, with the Forest Service? You know, do we figure out what is their curriculum currently and how do we enhance that mm-hmm. so that they're building these continued education credits that are adaptation related? So we're enhancing their accreditation programs with adaptation knowledge. And that's what our question is right now. It's not really if there needs to be accreditation. It's how do we accreditate? Is it ASAP accrediting or is it, you know, ASAP supporting accreditation across uh, the field of practice, which is diverse. And that goes back to trying to respect our members' time, that we understand that if you're a planner, and I'm, a, I'm an urban planner, so, you know, if I'm already doing AICP, do I also want to do the ASAP? If you're an architect and you are already lead and you're already, you know, getting your architecture accreditation, do you want to add another accreditation? What's What's the value and what's the cost and how do we hit that sweet spot so that our members are getting the lessons that they need to do good practice, but we're also respecting their professional lives and their their time already. I I think you become a mature field. You think about, you know, the planning association and the jobs that are out there for certification you know, that's where you get like involved with legislation. Like you can't do X, Y, or Z unless you have certification. And, you know, you hate to be heavy handed, but I guess that's a sign that you've matured as a field. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people right now are saying, well, adaptation isn't a field, but you know, a lot of people said that about planning too. And (laughs) planning is certainly a field, you know, it's taken some time to come into its own, but it has. I think something that's an interesting challenge, and I don't think this is a 10-year-out challenge, I think it's more of a 25-year-out or a 30-year-out challenge, is how does ASAP continue to be innovative and continue being the entity that is looked to for advancing practice? Where APA, I love my APA membership, I love my APA magazine, and but I look to it really for what are the pillars and what are the standards but less for the innovation and less for pushing the field. You know, Mm. once you have kind of locked into this really 
No, there I said twenty-five thousand in ten years. That's pretty nice. I think APA is forty thousand. You know, once you're kind of locked into your standards, how do you continue being innovative? And I'm not, I'm not really worried about that right now for ASAP because we're just all innovation. Everything that's happening is innovation. But down the road, we do need to, we're going to have to wrestle with that. How do we hold standards, but also encourage innovative practice? And, and that threat of if you're being innovative, there's risk. So how do you manage that risk? And I think that that'll be, I hope that, I hope that'll be a challenge that we get to face down because it'll mean that there are standards in place that are being recognized and accepted and now innovation trying to upset those standards. And that's a positive thing. Well, I like that term innovation. I think you are in this sweet spot, even though funding wise, I'm sure you're like, well, it, it's a challenge. You're, you have that startup mentality. And when you become mature, like a larger organization, inevitably you become conservative and you're sometimes you're just not challenging yourself in the way that you would like to. And that's fine for a larger organization, but hopefully it is over the next five years, you're just in this sweet spot where it's like, okay, well, let's try this and we're going to do these things. Yeah. Uh, it seems like an exciting opportunity. I think it's so, I think it is exciting. I also think it's why we need to get the Fed and the insurance on, you know, on the same page, on our page, because to be for a community, for any municipality or tribe to be innovative and to take risk that is so scary because they they need to know that there's going to be a net to catch them if this new technology or this new approach you know doesn't work or doesn't work as well as it was supposed to and i think you know we see that with green infrastructure people are afraid of it you talk about doing living shoreline versus building a seawall and they say, oh, we know seawalls. Those are pretty those are pretty solid. Are you sure this living shoreline will work? And we need to make sure that we have the funding and incentive programs in place so that communities feel like they can take risk and not lose everything and also not lose credibility to their constituents. Agreed. Agreed. Okay, so this is like my feedback to you. I'm the man on the street and your society, what you can help lead on. You know, the scientists still haven't gotten this. I have these conversations just with my colleagues. What is adaptation? And we, we use that example, you know, the, the Supreme Court relating to pornography. She's like, I know it oh. when I see it. Mm-hmm. And we're not necessarily there that maybe you disagree. We're not there yet when, you know, what is adaptation? And I have had this conversation, you know, uh, Molly Cross works for the Wildlife um, Conservation Society, and she's working with groups. They fund the, the, the adaptation fund is one of the few groups that actually funds on the ground projects specifically for adaptation. And they're go- struggling what exactly makes these projects adaptation? And when they fund it, they have all this criteria, but at the end of the day, they're still after the fact trying to figure out what's truly making this unique. And I don't think it should paralyze you, but I would hope a group like ASAP within the next five years could explain what is an adaptation project pretty quickly to, let's say, a legislator. Uh, I agree. And I think that it's fair that you're not going to make me answer that right now. Okay. <laughs> you can have an opinion. But I can. And, and I think that you can look around and you can, you know, you can backcast a lot of things to have been adaptation. And that's concerning. And there's also this potential right for maladaptation. One of the first priorities for 
and my coming into ASAP. And one of the first steps in that curriculum development that we're moving toward is setting a code of ethics. And I think that with that, we can say adaptation is when you're incorporating future looking climate data, you know, that's one piece, but it's only one piece of it. And you're also addressing an integrated approach. So you're thinking about your ecosystem, your social equity, and your economics. So adaptation is bringing together more than just an idea for one single place, more than just the rain garden here right now. But are you actually thinking about this is what the precipitation will look like this far out? Are you thinking about the economic value of that rain garden? Are you thinking about the community around that rain garden? Are they going to be benefiting? Are you going to be actually bringing in, I don't know, restoring or managing some type of existing ecosystem? And so I, you know, I obviously don't have a great answer for that question, but I think it's a combination of the climate, but also the integration of more than just one aspect of our planning processes. I'm going to make a prediction and you can say five years from now, oh, that guy I knew, Doug Parsons, he made this prediction is that as we really get into adaptation, are you familiar with the whole Forest Stewardship Council and then the Sustainable Forestry Initiative, the two like competing certifications for forestry? No. Like, one's industry. SFI is industry and the environmentalists hate it. And then the, the Forest Council one is like, okay, this is when you do actually good environmental practices. And I worry that in the adaptation universe, we're going to have these splintering things. And back to the idea of like maladaptation, like, you know, you have these groups and they built the seawall. And so this society of adaptation professionals, it's perfectly acceptable. But then you have the hardcore conservationists. They're like, you know what? That's not what it is. And we're not going to be teaming with you. And I, I worry we could have splinter adaptation groups and you are at the center of that. You need to prevent that. Mm-hmm. I agree. <laughs> and well, you know, I agree that we need to prevent it. But at the same time, if you have splintering and you see actually the opportunity for multiple groups standing up, that's not totally a bad thing. I don't know about the competition or the relationship between FSI and the Forest Council, but I'd be really interested in learning more about it because it sounds like it's probably a story that I should know and a story that I should be aware of for where I'm sitting in the adaptation field. Well, I haven't had had to deal with it in a while, but I dealt with it when I worked in Georgia. And you can just imagine the SFI, which is the industry standard, was the overwhelming favorite. And again, if that were to happen to adaptation, the natural resource conservation oriented side of things would, I think, instantly become relegated to not inconsequential, but the scrappy, less funded side of things. That's just the natural order of things. And so that's why I say let's avoid if we can. If the yeah. if the maladaptation, if we can get the natural resource perspective with the people that are just trying to do their jobs and climate-proof things, get them thinking about natural infrastructure, the next five to ten years is that window to do it. Mm-hmm. That's my humble. And I think, you know, just to give some credit where I think it's – where I think it's due, EPA made a big step in eliminating the secondary processes for implementing living shorelines. So they are starting to accept living shoreline as remediation process that is accepted with the same fluidity as seawalls. Oh, awesome. Yeah. So that was, I think it was a huge step. And that's where it has to come from, right? So there's this 
there's so much you say chicken or the egg in some way industry leads leads government but government also leads industry and how do we make sure that there is a regulatory environment that not just accepts but promotes and highlights and really actively enables that kind of conservation minded environmentally minded social justice minded type of approach instead of just saying it's dollars and cents and you should probably pour concrete yeah that's the concern we're we're heading toward almost an hour here and i think we've covered a lot of ground i'm very excited yeah. by what we we've have and i just want to make sure that if there's anything related to asap i guess the closest to maybe a provocative or tough question i i might ask you is there's this group, I think it's the Association for Climate Change Officers. Yeah. Okay. That's tell great. me. Tell me the difference between why would someone want to join ASAP versus and I'm not looking for you to bash ACO or they bash you, but what's the differences? Or is it okay? Is there enough room for both groups? And what 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 do you think? Yeah, so Daniel Krieger and I have had a great conversation about what is the space for both of our organizations in the adaptation field. And you know, they are moving down the road of setting up accreditation. They're very private sector focused. We are definitely a bigger tent and we certainly put a premium on the network where ACO has been born out of a professional experience, which Daniel has, which is unique in actually creating accreditation programs. So he developed an accreditation program for the banking industry before he moved into the climate field. And so they're very focused on, you know, I think this small segment, thinking about private, thinking about accreditation, thinking about kind of that realm where we're thinking about what is the bigger story and how do we build this network? How do we connect the people that do the work? How do we make sure that we're speaking that policy language? How do we make sure we're listening to the members and creating resources that they need? And I guess I just have to say that knowing who our members are, and knowing how sophisticated they are in the adaptation work, I feel like we have a knowledge base that does, it goes beyond where Daniel's and ACO's organization is because they're really setting up more of a shop for the accreditation than a network of, of knowledge. Okay, that seems like reasonable differences. If you could highlight, if people like, I'm going to have a, a website where I'm hosting this podcast and such, but I mean, are there other groups or there individual projects? I just want to give you a chance to make some plugs for some, for some other, other, other organizations that you really think, like want to brag about. Yeah. Well, I should start with not that I should, but most reasonably our member, our partners are, uh, you know, Georgetown Climate, who just released a 2.0 version of their adaptation clearinghouse, which is fantastic. And the folks over there really have their finger on where is policy um, and what are, you know, what are the emerging policies around adaptation across the country? Um, state, state, local, federal, highly recommend chatting with them. Had a really nice conversation with a brand new group that's popped up a tool that's called the Atlas. And Atlas is dedicated to connecting um, vendors and consumers of adaptation technologies. Hmm. And so this is going beyond just not the planning, not the assessment, but the, you know, implemented technologies. And I had a really great conversation with somebody there. Her name was Elle. I don't remember her last name off the top of my head, but she had actually come from EPA and now they set up a private firm. Would really 
I think that they could they could be a great person, a great group to talk to. And then, you know, if you want to talk about communication and communicating climate change, the folks at Climate Access, Kara Pike, Meredith Herr, they are, I think, the the go-to people for that. They spend all their time and all their energy thinking about how do we get the word out? How do we have climate, you know, be resonant to the everyman? And what are what are the best tools and resources to be doing that with? So I would plug them as well. All right. Well, I'll track their websites down for sure. I'll definitely include that on the sort of position podcast description. That's great. Mm-hmm. I just saw you, you guys, I think, team up closely with the National Adaptation Forum. I think I just saw the notice oh. that they're doing, like, what is it, just, you know, the, the panel submissions. I, I'm assuming you're going to be active in that? Yeah. So, thank you. Oh, okay. My bad. There. It was like it's yesterday. Been... Don't worry about it. It was like yesterday. It was. It was yesterday, and it's not till May of 2017. Why? So it's That's like, crazy. It's... <laughs> But uh, yeah, so National Adaptation Forum just put out their call for sessions. And this is actually, I think it's a call for sessions and proposals. It's the whole caboodle. Um, So check it out. There are a couple types of sessions, uh, poster presentations and maybe work groups that aren't due until later. But most of the general call is now open and it's open until early October. National Adaptation Forum will take place in May of 2017. It'll be in beautiful St. Paul. And if you haven't been to St. Paul, I can't say enough good things about it. I try to go and work up there as much as I can. The folks in Minnesota um, are really taking climate adaptation seriously. The state is taking it really seriously. And both St. Paul and Minneapolis are doing really interesting work in approaching the subject in different ways, but really kind of forwarding the work at the city level and also very much engaged with their local communities. And the conference is going to be right on the Mississippi. It's right on the river. So it's a cool spot. I was thinking about actually doing my own panel, maybe recruiting some like non-traditional methods of communicating adaptation, but I have to give it some more thought, you know, like, oh, the podcast or those kind of things. So I got to, I got to go dig into that. So Doug, before we wrap up, you know, I would love to hear from you about what you want from ASAP because it's fine for me to have a lot of ideas, but that's not my that's not my purpose here. My purpose as the managing director of a membership organization is to understand what does the community want. And so if you had a vision for ASAP, <laughs> what would it be? Wow, turning the tables on me. Um, <laughs> uh, just a, a witch hunt for my political enemies, if it'd be a vehicle uh-huh. for that, that's just sure. solely for that. Oh, geez, you put me on the spot here. It's almost like it's an interview or something. Uh-huh. Um, no, I, I think a lot of what you talked about, I think, is a great vision, that whole 10-year question. I think what you are describing, like how do you turn it into mature? And so getting a lot of members. But I think early days – I love policy and I love being part of this conversation. I just don't like, you know, necessarily the nuts and bolts of keeping something running, but I want, you know, my voice to be heard. And so there's just ways that hopefully I, I would challenge you to, um, to plug in to, you know, there's just committees and national fish and wildlife adaptation, uh, uh, strategy. And there's just things that uh, I would hope that ASAP will help influence. And, you know, you're t- ch- chatting with your members, but, Set some baselines for like what is adaptation. That will be so helpful for people. Like if they can start doing their own elevator speech. You know, I did that when I was at SCB as we started recording like 30 second elevator speeches on what is climate adaptation. It was more like an experiment, but like your members should be able to hopefully have more refined answer. That would be a great thing on your website. Certification, I'm not sure. I, I like the idea, but I think 
you probably have to figure out the field a bit more closely on what that is. And I also would, if I was there, <laughs> the idea of communicating adaptation is such a big one. There's only so much that you can do as an individual, and hopefully you maybe get part-time staff or you get interns or whatever, but you can only do so much policy. You can only do much, so much like of these actual project management, but like you can be a leader on communicating the topic, be that ambassador. And I, as a, as a member of ASAP, and I think I've, I've let mine expire. I've been bad. I would love to just see you quoted, you know, you're out there and you're talking about these issues, get relationships with reporters and such. And these are low cost, hopefully low time sinks for ASAP to just take on a more prominent role. And even if there's some things that your members don't agree with, at least they're seeing you out there front and center, and then you can get, that's ways of getting feedback. Because sometimes when you send out surveys, it's like, okay, you get 5% and you're happy with that. But if you say something provocative, hopefully not stupid, then all of a sudden people pop their heads up. And that, that's not necessarily a bad thing. So I'm jumping all over the place, but I like the question. But uh, yeah, you have, you have an exciting opportunity, but just, Come on, get to D.C., and I, I, I know some folks here, too, and I'm sure you know a ton of people, but get embedded with yep. some of these. And, you know, whatever you can do, find the biggest pillow you can find and just smother the resilience, uh, <laughs> just smother it to death. I want it dead. Kill it. Um, I, I'm seeing these resilience officers pop up, and I think it's wonderful that people, um, like the cities, are allocating the funding for it. They're not they're, allocated the funding though. They're, I mean, oh, that's like the Rockefellers. Best, right. That's oh, okay. Yeah. That's a different podcast. Okay. Probably one that's over drinks and not actually broadcast. Yeah, don't want to get you in trouble <laughs> with Rockefeller. Hey, they're not no, getting me I mean, any money. I should say that Rockefeller has been great to ASAP. Rockefeller gave the initial funding for ASAP, but I think the understanding the CRO process has been very hard for me. Well, I will tell Rockefeller on this podcast that will be heard by untold number of people that you should have changed it to adaptation officers. Resilience officers is sending the wrong message. And I will take credit for this as part of that. You probably heard of those awards, the uh, adaptation awards that um, CEQ and then um, AFWA. And um, it was great. It was the first year. And one of the my podcasts, he was an honorable mention. I was very excited for him. But I was in the meeting where they decided if they wanted to change it from adaptation award to resilience award. I raised my hand. I said, no, it should be the adaptation award. And I was just I wasn't even on the committee. And it led to a discussion, and I'm not I'm not going to take complete credit, but it went back to CQ, and then they stuck with Adaptation Award. And Good. Yes, and I think it's better for your ASAP because you are adaptation professionals. I think it is better for us as, as adaptation professionals. And if there's nothing – you know, we went into that conversation early about resilience and adaptation and what do people want to hear. But it's also really important that we pick some language and we stick with it as a field because this – I think a lot of the adaptation field is still being influenced by the research community and research needs to come up with new language. That's their job, mm -hmm. right? They, they come up with new things to say and they publish papers on it. But those of us that actually serve communities need to have, again, standards. We need people to say adaptation. I know what that is. I've heard about it now for five years, 10 years, 15 years, and not, you know, not let ourselves as a field be drawn into the research realm that is trying to move language into new places, because that's what research does. Like we as service providers need to say, this is what it is. This is what it means. This is how you do it and say it and be consistent. You know, I agree. 
And I don't want to rush us off this podcast. I'm just more sensitive to like, okay, we've taken an hour, of, I think, of a fantastic conversation. And this is, I think, people's sort of limit on this. And I want to give you one last chance. If you're making a pitch to potential members or just any final words, I like to give the guests the final words. But I just want to say well, this has been a fantastic conversation. I, I It's probably the most lively adaptation discussions I've had so far. But uh, <laughs> thanks for coming on. It's like it's this I'm trying to make it less wonkish. I, people outside of just our immediate circle might be interested in listening to this. I don't think people watching Honey Boo Boo are necessarily going to tune in, but make it a little bit more lively. But no, please, you get the final word, and I'll say a little bit final after that. But please, uh, take this last bit. Yeah, I guess I would say I I've appreciated this. I actually have whiteboards in my office and I've been taking notes on our conversation. So I've, I've certainly found it to be engaging and useful for me. Um, also a good check. Will we be there in 10 years? I've worked on what I said I want. Okay, great. <laughs> but I hope that people will think about, you know, think about the field. Are you out there? Are you doing work? Are you somebody that's doing ecosystem restoration? Are you doing city management? Are you running a community health program? And Think about looking to ASAP for resources, for network, for community, and you'll be able to find us all over this fall. As I said, we'll be in California, Carolina, Southeast Florida, Michigan, Portland, uh, with booths and with information and looking to hear from both our members and our potential members about how we can create an organization that is really providing value and a service and lifting up this field for the betterment of everybody, the betterment of all of our communities. So I can't thank you enough for giving me a chance to talk about ASAP and a chance to hear myself come up with crazy ideas because you know, I, I do, I work from a home office. So sometimes it's just me and the cat thinking about things. And so getting to actually talk out loud and have someone talk back to me is awesome. <laughs> no, excellent. And thanks again for joining us. Um, and for potential ASAP members, I encourage you, it's a new group and I, I think they have committees and there's just, this is when you get in and you can actually influence things. And so if you, for any number of reasons, I think it's, it's a great opportunity for people to, to join a society. And so, again, thank you, Beth. Thanks for joining America Daps, a climate change podcast. I'm hoping to have Beth on again maybe in six months, nine months, and just checking in with her and seeing where she's at and, you know, where membership is up to 2,500 or, you know, whatever. Let's be ambitious. But thanks for joining, Beth, and I hope everyone has a great day. Great. Thank you, Doug. Hey everyone, this is Doug Parsons again with the America Daps, a climate change podcast. And after one episode hiatus, Tim Watkins is back with the new what is it? What is it? We're calling it. It's the Adaptation and Wine Power Hour. Welcome exactly. back, Tim. Thank you so much. I'm afraid I'm not drinking wine because it's like uh, 110 degrees outside, so I'm having a cranberry juice spritzer. Oh. Come on. I wouldn't <laughs> found a wine, man. I've got it's a Cuisina Mucal. It's a Chilean wine and it's a twenty fourteen Chardonnay and it's actually not bad. And so you're making a mockery of this new tradition. <laughs> well, if it's any better on Facebook, I saw a photo of a, you know, office water cooler sized dispenser of Prosecco. So Oh really? At that time I must be drinking a <laughs> well, if I have it, it must be cheap. So, yeah. Well, it's actually not bad, but it is bleeding hot out. So, how have you been? Uh, I'm all right. I think I forget exactly when we last talked, but took the family on a vacation to Scotland uh, this summer, which was outstanding. Saw some extended family in a wedding, 
And there's a climate change connection there that I thought I would mention. A potential guest or something? uh, No, 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 no. So Scotland has a lot of wind power, you and your listeners may know. And we have relatives there who live in East Kilbride, which is a suburb just south of Glasgow. And there's a whole bunch of wind farms right around that area. And so you can walk around and, you know, you come over the crest of a hill and, whoa, there's a giant wind turbine. And it's pretty cool. One of the things flying around the interwebs the other day was an announcement that Scotland generated more electrical power than the country needed one day last week, I think it was. And it's just nice to see that happening. Um, And frankly, even though I was, you know, a tourist there for a short period of time, and so everything was wonderful, of course, I was really not troubled by seeing wind turbines around. I I don't feel the distraction on the landscape that some people complain about. Oh, no, I was out in California, and I saw a huge farm. I mean, I, there's a certain beauty to it. You know, if they're on the landscape, it's almost futuristic. I don't know. I, I'm the same way. I, I have no problem whatsoever. I don't know the the issue around the birds, but I think they're getting better on that. Have you heard anything recently on that, like the bird kills that happen with them? There are bird kills. I don't know what the latest is, but, you know, frankly, the number of birds that are being wiped out because of climate change or other impacts besides um, – uh, wind turbines is far greater than what's being killed by wind turbines. So, uh, dare I say, that's like jousting at windmills. Speaking, of what what should we talk about in this session? I I got a an email, a somewhat I don't think it was a listener email, but it was an email related to the podcast, and I wanted to talk about it with you. I thought we could quickly talk about it in this episode. And so this episode, this will be in for I I did an interview with Beth Gibbons, the managing director of the. Uh, American Society for Adaptation Professionals. Great conversation, really sharp lady, and so this is going to be tied into what she's talking about. So, a society of adaptation people. I don't, are, are you a member? I'm not. No. Well, I, maybe I should become one. Well, well, I guess I would. I'm going to have to encourage you. I guess at least check it out, or you could yeah. listen to the entire podcast and decide for yourself. But anyway, so I got this email. You know, I post the podcast on all sorts of sites just to get exposure for it, and. Someone wrote me back, and this is what they wrote, and I'm gonna, I want to talk a little bit about this. And it just it was a description of the podcast, climate change adaptation. And so this person, Oceanic Estate, is the user. Good luck adapting to nine meters of sea level rise. Anyone promoting adaptation is a troll or not aware of the science. <laughs> I'm open for discussions on mitigation, however. Wow. I mean, the <laughs> first time I've ever been called a troll. Wow. So this adaptation. You're famous now. <laughs> Wait, you know what? Well, I think this smacks of like wasn't in the early aughts when people said, "Don't talk about adaptation." You're you're jumping, right. and so it, it had that kind of whiff of that. But I mean, to be called a troll, I don't know if they even thought that I was t- completely throwing in the towel on mitigation. But <laughs> I think that just goes to show that there's a need for this podcast to explain that you know this is kind of. A parallel track to mitigation, not trying to replace it or anything. So, right. <laughs> <laughs> troll! I was damn it. You know, it's kind of funny. I, I'm dealing with some car troubles these days, and so it's it's sort of like the analogy between, um, you know, don't bother changing the oil in your car because your car is going to only last so many years, and instead you should just save up money for your next car. And it's <laughs> sort of silly. I mean, why wouldn't you do both? They felt strongly about this, though, and yeah, I'm I'm still trying to dissect. This could just be a madman that's been let loose on Reddit, and so I, <laughs> I don't know. But I, there's got to be something I, I, there. Me, 
I was just trying to, you know, be. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> At least it wasn't a death threat like last time. Anyway, I, I, I take their point, and I think it, it, it's almost like a legacy issue that, no, we haven't, we don't encourage anyone to give up. In fact, we're talking about renewable energy, wind power here, you know? It's not like we're completely ignoring the mitigation issue, right. but I thought it was humorous that someone kind of needled us that way. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that person is going to have the idea that don't focus on adaptation, don't invest in adaptation, because that just takes resources away from mitigation and preventing further climate change, and that's what we really need to do. And, you know, that's just a false dichotomy. I, you know that. So did you you haven't replied to that guy, have you? You know, I actually did, and he wrote back something that was a bit rambling, too, just like don't give up on mitigation or something like that. But I was trying to be very reason my response because they say you know even you know negative comments you know respond because that just creates traffic and such so yeah no nobody's giving up on mitigation that's <laughs> well <laughs> a few people but uh we won't mention any political parties here well you know another thing that i thought was interesting is that they use this number of nine meters of sea level rise i mean i that's a pretty big number i never see that i see between like three and like three feet to like six feet so you know one to two meters but they're going with nine meters that's probably one of those things that's circulating around out there yeah i don't know you know any estimate of actual height of sea level rise you have to say over what period of time of course and then if he doesn't cite a source for that information, then, you know, take that with a grain of salt. But uh, one thing I do see is, you know, a lot of the um, the IPCC projections for sea level rise uh, over the years, you know, they give a range. The data keeps seem to agree with the highest ranges that they project each time they come out with a new assessment. And so um, I suspect that the IPCC and, you know, other bodies on sea level rise are probably being a little bit conservative uh, for any number of reasons and the data just seem to support their more extreme projections so nine meters perhaps at some point at some you know over some period of time well there's like a 10-year delay in all those studies the ipcc for listeners who don't know is the intergovernmental panel on climate change and they release their report. I think it's every five years. And then right. the, domestically, we have the National Climate Assessment, which is kind of a couple years off from the IPCC. And they're, it's like they're different versions of a conservative number. And so the NCA might be a little bit more provocative, but still very conservative. And then next thing you know, the next report's coming out, and they release it, and they still try to be conservative. And they haven't really caught up with the science. Actually, it's quite frustrating because they the reference so much, you know, planners and all that. So they just need to just – what are their detractors going to, you know, accuse them of bad science? They need to stop worrying about that. Yeah. Okay. I just wanted to bring up that email. I thought it was a very exciting email. I've, I've never been called a troll before. So, you know, you should um, you should print it out and frame it like <laughs> you with your small business when you get that first dollar. Okay, and so this is the first feedback email. So, uh, are are you a troll? So I the think first I've, troll. Yeah, there you go. I got to <laughs> ramp up the quality of this thing. Any additional thoughts before we head out here? No, I'm just I'm adapting by staying inside today. So I'm just trying to keep it cool. 
Oh, I know. It is boiling hot out there. So, yes, thank you again, Tim. It's always a pleasure. And until next time, and, and do listen in, Beth Gibbons, ASAP. That's what a great acronym for shortened for their organization, huh? ASAP. Yes. Yep, I like that. <laughs> okay, thanks right. again, and don't drink too much. No, you too. All right, take, take care. care. That's the end of the episode. Thanks again for joining us here at America Adapts, the climate change podcast. We forgot to mention the name of the website for the American Society of Adaptation Professionals. It's adaptationprofessionals.org. And I'll have that on our website at americadapts.org. And don't forget, if you want to ask questions or you have ideas for guests, contact me at americadapts at gmail.com. And of course, please consider subscribing and rating the show on iTunes. And we are, if you're looking for us, at America Adapts. And finally, consider liking us on Facebook at, you guessed it, America Adapts. Thanks. Until next time, you adapt, we adapt, America Adapts.